back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark, and I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Peter, Alyssa, how are you today? I'm swell. Glad to be talking about movies with my friends. Uh, first up in controversies and non-troversies, Warner Brothers upended the world of theatrical releases late last week when it announced that every movie in the studio's 2021 slate, from Dune to The Matrix 4 to The Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, is going to hit HBO Max in theaters at the same time. This comes on the heels of news that WW84, or possibly Wonder Woman 84, however that is pronounced, uh, will do the same thing this year at Christmas time. There are many ins and outs and what have you's here. Production label Legendary is considering a lawsuit given the loss in revenue they face on Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, agencies are scrambling to figure out what this means for profit participation for their clients. Roku still does not have a deal with AT&T to stream HBO Max, and I feel like that's the sneakily biggest issue here, um, uh, except for this one. And that is whether or not theaters will even agree to play Warner Brothers movies. Uh, on the one hand, they'll be in a position to negotiate better terms with the studios, right? Instead of keeping 47% of box office grosses or whatever, perhaps they can keep 60% as much as 65 or 70%. My, my understanding is that the split uh, they got from MGM for the Bill and Ted movie uh, was very, very generous. And, and that is what they're going to be looking for here. Um, on the other hand, though, that's a bigger piece of a much, much smaller pie. Uh, we'll see how WW84 does when it debuts on both simultaneously, but I'm not expecting that movie to top even Tenet's modest $57 million gross. Alyssa, are theaters going to bend the knee here, or will they shut out WB as a warning to other distributors not to try the same thing? Man, I have no idea, but I would not want to be on any end of this decision right now. Um, I sort of understand why Warner Brothers is doing this. You know, the stock market is telling everyone that they should be in the streaming business right now. The launch of HBO Max has not gone swimmingly, uh, as far as we can tell. It's not gotten huge uptick. We all like the service. There's great stuff on it, but... Uh, unless you want to watch all of Hitchcock's oeuvre, um, it's, you know, maybe not something that you're knowing to seek out. Um, but in pursuit of that, Warner Brothers has ended up sort of screwing almost everybody or at least leaving them wondering if they're going to be screwed, which kind of poisons the well in these conversations and, you know, just leaves a lot of ambiguity in the air. And even if this is sort of a one-time thing to both bolster the streaming service and make some sort of, you know, cheesy lemon bars out of pandemic lemons, um, I think it's going to leave a lot of people feeling screwed in a way that could make it harder for Warners in the future. I mean, do you want to sign up to bring your movie there if you're not sure you're going to get a theatrical release? Do you want to be in business with them as a theatrical distributor if you have no idea if they're periodically going to just say oh by the way we're going to undercut your profits and we're going to have to negotiate again for that smaller piece of the lemon bar since I guess I'm sticking with this metaphor um, it just seems like a spectacularly unpleasant situation for everyone Warner Brothers included um, but yeah I have to imagine that it's leaving a lot of people shocked frustrated and i don't know how you make these calculations as a theater owner especially since you know it's it's just not clear that people are going to be back anyway um 
And so I don't know what the best negotiating tactic is here. Yeah. If you're a theater owner. I mean, there, there are so many, uh, essentially unknown unknowns we don't we don't know you know what the uh vaccine penetration rate is going to look like in june we don't know uh you know if people are going to be ready to go back to theaters by october when when dune was supposed to come out peter uh are you are you as shocked as i am that warner's and really parent company AT&T, because I get the sense that this is mostly coming from AT&T on down, uh, didn't give any of their partners really much of a heads up. I mean, I mm-hmm. saw a story in uh, Variety or The Hollywood Reporter somewhere that said that they they literally called uh, they literally called up the heads of the big agencies, CAA and WMA and the rest, like two hours before this happened. We're like, so we're doing this. We're doing this thing. Uh it seems insane. It seems insane to me. I think there's going to be big complications as all of this shakes out. And like Alyssa, I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. But basically what they've done is move from a theatrical distribution model, a conventional studio theatrical distribution model, to a Netflix model, to a, a like overnight without telling anyone. Um, I saw one estimate in the trades that they're going to that there's this is going to result in a two billion dollar write down, um, basically just from the the uh, the loss of box office revenue, two billion dollars that suddenly Warner Brothers doesn't have to distribute amongst all of its partners, and so who is going to lose two billion dollars? It's not just going to be one organization. Lots of people are going to take giant hits on this. Two billion dollars pays a lot of people. Suddenly, a lot of those, suddenly many of them are going to get paid either less or not at all. And Netflix has solved this issue in, in large part. Um, I think we've talked about this before a little bit, but if you go back and look at some of the reporting on the budget for Bright, which was one of their first big budget movies uh, with Will Smith, directed by David Ayer, uh, the reported budget on Bright was about $90 million. But uh, apparently, about forty million dollars of that was buying out the back end for the above the above the title title above the title talent. Yes, um, right. And so, so Will Smith was getting you know ten twenty million dollars, whatever it is he's getting, and David Ayer is getting a big payout. Right. Essentially, they were saying, look, you guys normally make a huge percentage off the box office. We will buy buy that from you. Um, and Warner Brothers just went ahead and did this without making any of those arrangements or without going through any of their partners. And this sort of thing in, in Hollywood is, this is this is in some ways the kind of financial lifeblood of Hollywood. Uh, I don't know if you guys know the term waterfall, uh, but when negotiating contracts for movies, everyone involved, all the people who get paid in a way out of the, out of the uh, amount of money that, that the movie makes, are involved in the waterfall, which is the order of who gets paid, how much, right? And and at what time, under what, you know, uh, under what circumstances. Warner Brothers just sort of said, screw the waterfall. But the waterfall is like, it's, it's the thing that keeps Hollywood alive, or more directly, it's the thing that keeps everyone who works in Hollywood able to pay their mortgages. And $2 billion of mortgage payments are now not going to get distributed to people who work with Warner Brothers. Um, I think that there's a very good chance that what ends up happening out of this is that AT&T as a parent company ultimately gets out of the theatrical distribution business and that Warner Brothers either gets sold off or closed down and that Warner Brothers as we know it does not does not survive this, at least in its current form. Hmm. 
That's uh, I that would be pretty surprising to me if it resulted in the entire shutdown of Warner Brothers. I'm not saying that no movie after this year ever comes out with a with a Warner Brothers shield again. That 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 is going to go away permanently. I just think that there's that if you look at this deal, you look at the reporting around the corporate environment there. It doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of uh, appetite on the part of the corporate overlords for the kinds of movies and the kinds of theatrical business that the theatrical business that Warner Brothers has been in for the last however many decades. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm skeptical that Warner Brothers as a studio ceases to exist because Warner Brothers as a studio has a lot of very valuable intellectual property. And as we know, intellectual property is king. Uh, but I do I do wonder if it shifts to essentially Netflix light, which is uh, or Netflix 2.0, because frankly, I think it's better than Netflix, but that's that's a value judgment. That's neither here nor there. Um, uh, Alyssa, what else what else should we be uh, thinking about with this this huge story? I mean, I like again, I my my focus on this stuff is always theaters first because theaters employ tons of people. Theaters uh, are kind of the lifeblood of the industry. But I, you know, maybe uh, maybe there's something we're missing here. I mean, I think one thing to look out for is what the ultimate equilibrium of the streaming content business looks like, because we have no idea what that actually is. Uh, Netflix has for years operated a lot like Amazon in that they were just willing to spend astonishing amounts of money on content um, and sort of to do that in pursuit of growth. Um, And they, you know, they have made a good amount of revenue. It's not like that they haven't been operating at a loss per se, but they have been spending an astonishing amount of money on content. And even so, you know, I don't see a world in which the streaming business spends the amount of money that it takes to say, make a full 17 film slate a year, which is what Warner's is sending to HBO Max, plus all of the, you know, the sheer amount of television that Netflix is making, and does it in a world where talent potentially costs more money because people don't trust that they're going to get a theatrical back end anymore. I mean, if you think about the, you know, the insane salaries that Robert Downey Jr. was getting for the Marvel movies by the end of his run as Iron Man. And for the first Avengers, he got the single biggest payout that any actor, just actor had ever gotten for a movie. It was something like $50 million just for that first Avengers film. And then what happens when, you know, Netflix and HBO Max and Disney Plus have to start paying more because people aren't going to get profit participation. I mean, what is happening here is a situation where making all of this stuff, I mean, maybe you lose some of the marketing budgets and stuff for it. You know, you don't, you're not in a situation where you essentially take the budget of a movie and double it. And that's what it costs to both make and market it. But even so, you know, we don't know how many streaming services Americans are willing to pay for. We don't know sort of the mix of stuff. And so we don't know what, you know, amount of content the system can produce and have the companies be profitable in a way that's viable. We just have no idea. And we're about to get a big test of that. And, you know, people have always, there has always been this sort of canard that you could cut the cord and get, you know, this exactly the stuff that you wanted and it would be better. But I would not be shocked if after years of sort of escalating numbers of, 
you know, superhero movies and television shows, we see a crash at some point and the result ends up being a lot less content and some of it's more expensive. Um, so I think, you know, that sort of beyond the specific questions of the fate of Warner Brothers, I'm just really interested in seeing what economic equilibrium a lot arrives in streaming because that is going to determine how much stuff we have to watch and what kind of stuff we have to watch. From an investor perspective, streaming services are just a much better prospect than big theatrical features because streaming services uh, are are subscription-based. And so that means, yes, people do jump on and off the service throughout the year, um, although you can solve that, uh, you can mitigate that if you want by um, offering yearly packages or uh, contracts. Uh, but what that means is that instead of maybe getting every family in the United States to go to the movies once each in a year, which is uh, the average number of times that a sort of typical person in the United States sees a movie in a, in a year, you are getting their $7.99 or $10.99 or $15.99 or whatever the number is every single month. And people, I mean, if you look at AOL's business um, from years ago, AOL basically collapsed as a concern and then kept raking in cash for a decade after that because people just had forgotten to cancel their subscriptions. And so this, so subscription models are just much more investor friendly because they guarantee a certain amount of revenue. And frankly, they guarantee more revenue than uh, than box office, uh, than theatrical films do. Because again, people have, you've got to build an audience for each film. You've got all this expensive advertising. There's a chance that it's going to be a flop, a streaming service. Pretty much, you know what you're going to get month to month and that sort of regularity. Um, we've talked about the way that Disney and Marvel uh, have a kind of regularity to the production of their films. Their films feel very similar, but what that, that artistic regularity is all is really about financial regularity, right? They want to know that each one of those movies is going to be pretty successful mm -hmm. at a certain level. And what if you could just take out the artistic question entirely and just make sure that everybody gave you their whatever, however many dollars it is per month. And that's what streaming services do. And that's why investors are saying, Hey, go after the streaming dollars, even if it costs you, and it is definitely going to cost Warner Brothers really big upfront to do so. All right. So, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that Warner Brothers is debuting their slate on streaming and in theaters simultaneously? Peter, absolutely a controversy. This blows up the theatrical exhibition model more than basically anything else we've seen, even the closure of many theaters this year. Alyssa. 100% a controversy, um, and maybe even a kind of apocalyptic one if you care about the fate of movie theaters. Definitely a controversy. Uh, I just, I don't see how this has a happy ending for anyone from from theaters, of course, but also talent to Warner Brothers itself. I just, the, like, this really seems like uh, a, a, a very real version of trading theatrical dollars for digital pennies, um, and I, I don't see how this... Uh, works out for anyone. Cheery. Uh, as a reminder, if you enjoy the show, please make sure to check out our Bulwark Plus members only episode. This week, we are talking about Matthew McConaughey's aggressive centrism, that alt center not to be trusted. Uh, is this the official end of the McConaissance? That's what we will be talking on the bonus uh, about on the bonus episode. So tune in for that. On to the main event. This week, we are reviewing Mank. 
David Fincher's ode to Herman Mankiewicz, the writer of Citizen Kane, shot in a digital black and white in a manner designed to look like film black and white, uh, down to the cigarette burns in the corner of the picture signifying a real change if one were to be watching this in a theater, which is about as extinct as black and white movies at this point. Uh, Fincher's film is less about the making of Citizen Kane and more about the themes of Citizen Kane, the importance of ideals and sticking to them. Hustled to a high desert hideaway and kept from the booze that helps the words flow from his head to the page, Mank, played by Gary Oldman in this picture, has been tasked by Orson Welles with bringing the life and times of William Randolph Hearst to the big screen. Uh, at this point in his career, Mank is washed up and washed out. His greatest work is long behind him. But the subject matter inspires greatness from him, helping him churn out uh, the screenplay for what is arguably the best film ever made. Critics have gotten their hackles up over this film, in part because of comments Fincher has made during interviews about Wells and Kane. Uh, the film is being treated by some as the cinematic equivalent of Pauline Kael's book on the subject, which took a decidedly anti-Wells approach, but this strikes me as missing the forest for the trees. The fight for credit uh, on Citizen Kane is a relatively small and unimportant part of Mank. Of more interest at least to me, and I think to everybody else on this podcast, uh, is the manner in which Hollywood's status as a dream factory is used and abused by partisan hacks to influence the 1934 gubernatorial race in California. Moguls like Louis B. Mayer wanted the GOP candidate to win. Idealists like Mank wanted Upton Sinclair. Um, I mentioned this in my review of the film, uh, but I want to reiterate it here because I do think the subtext is pretty interesting. Uh, the surface reading is that the moguls are bad, and one way that they're bad is by supporting a Republican. As we know, Republicans are evil. Uh, the slightly deeper reading is that Hollywood's power can be used for good or evil, so one must can, must take care to how, uh, how its power is used. The galaxy brain take here, and this is the one that I find most interesting and probably almost certainly wrong, but at least interesting, uh, is that Hollywood rushing to uniformly back anyone or any party is gross and unseemly, and using the power of the studio's slash star system to crush those who dissent is profoundly immoral. Peter, uh, do you think there was any extra resonance in casting Gary Oldman, a heterodox Hollywood thinker, in the role of Mank? Oh, I absolutely think so. I mean, look, the movie has been in the works for almost 20 years. And at one point, there were there was at least a, a one other actor attached to play that role. I believe Kevin Spacey um, at one point was going to play the role. But at this point, Gary Oldman is one of the most outspoken non-liberals in, in Hollywood. And to have him playing this role of a, a kind of... A cynical truth teller who exposes the smugness and condescension of the studio bosses, um, I, I think definitely lends itself to some um, interpretive possibilities. Uh, the way I look at this movie is that you can, I, I think it's totally legitimate to see this as a, a movie about how the studio bosses were bad and corrupt, in part because they supported bad Republicans who were bad people. Like, I don't think that that's a simply wrong reading, but I think there's something deeper going on, um, something a little more clever, a little more subversive, which is that it's not really about how the studio bosses supported Republicans. It's about how the studio bosses and the big directors and, and, and all of the talents in Hollywood were just full of themselves and they kind of hated the, their audiences. And they thought that they were better than their, their viewers and they thought they were better than the material they were producing. And you look at that scene in the beginning when, um, uh, when Mank and his team of writers is brought in to pitch 
David O. Selznick. And Selznick starts by talking about how he doesn't want to produce, you know, monster movie trash. That's for Universal. And then what does what does Mank pitch him? He pitches him basically Frankenstein, except that it's been sort of laundered through a kind of artistic, psychological. It's right? like about he, something. Yes, it's, it's about, about something, something, right? And like there's this whole there's this whole recurring theme that you see throughout the movie about these these Hollywood artists who think that they are these great men, these sort of, you know, sort of these people who have real ideas and, and yet they feel sort of like, they feel a little bit ugly making their money off of basically cheap thrills. Um, and so the way that they absolve themselves is by getting into politics. Does that sound at all familiar? Right? Like, this is this is David Fincher. I really believe this is David Fincher taking on uh, today's political liberalism in a like kind of brilliantly uh, disguised way, right? He is saying Hollywood, like um, what he's basically saying is yes, in the 1930s, Hollywood wasn't run by smug, condescending liberal hacks. It was run by smug, condescending Republican hacks. But the thing that has stayed the same is that they were smug and condescending. And the reason I think that you can make that kind of transference is because the other thing that's going on in the movie is that it's talking about the dawn of the talking age in films, right? And, and the sound age. And it is, a, it is a, a movie very much about Hollywood in a transition period as it is going through a technological and social change. And it's just very clear that Fincher, who has spent the last couple of years making things for Netflix, who, re, who released this on Netflix, is interested in this sort of technological transformation and sees that period as an analog to our current to our current period in in uh, in, in film. He's saying, I, I think, pretty clearly, like, look, th those periods, th these periods are, are are matched in a certain way, and they're not just matched in that there was a technological transformation, an artistic transformation, but also in the way that Hollywood felt itself to be above normal viewers and above the material that they were that they were involved in and therefore decided to get in, involved in politics to solve their egos and he was saying it was gross. Alyssa, and it still is. Alyssa, what do you what did you make of uh, Mank? I don't think I liked it as much as either of you did. Um but I have been noodling over sort of the question of its politics for a couple of days and I think that what Peter is saying is correct, but there's another layer to the movie as well. Ooh, which I love more layers. <laughs> it's about something. Um, and one of the things that I've been really struck by is that, you know, the movie treats Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg as if they are, you know, smug, condescending, and they're interfering in this political race. Um, but it also says something interesting about Manx's own sort of passivity and self-absorption, right? I mean... You know, Thalberg and Mayer are doing something kind of, they're doing something that's recognizably gross. They are making up these, you know, fake testimonials um, to tar Upton Sinclair as sort of the candidate of the impoverished, you know, non-white hordes who are kind of invading California and the Republican as the guardian of, you know, American values, the person who's going to keep Hollywood in California, keep all those jobs there. Um but they are much more effective than Mankiewicz is. Um, you know, he spends a lot of time hanging out at William Randolph Hearst's parties, you know, and making these, you know, sort of 
asides about, you know, the Nazis are bad. Upton Sinclair isn't really that dangerous, but he doesn't have the conviction to really do anything. Um, you know, he, the only time you see him kind of really engage with Sinclair's campaign is watching across the street as Sinclair gives mm-hmm. a speech in the, a sort of Hooverville. Um, he doesn't prevent the suicide of a friend who had participated in the scheme to defeat S- Sinclair. He's not even sort of effective. He tries. He, he, he tries. tries. He but, tries, yeah. but he sort of he can't think his way into the sort of deviousness that kind of animates a really committed person, right? He can't stand up to the studio heads who are doing this thing that he thinks is rotten, um, except in to sort of withdraw himself from the campaign. He can't see his way through Shelley Metcalf's despair to actually prevent him from committing suicide. And then when he does finally stand up years later to write about Hearst and Citizen Kane, the person he ends up hurting even more than Hearst is Marion Davies, who he has developed this friendship with and who he knows to be sort of an intelligent, more talented person than she is given credit for. And yet he turns her into a sort of talentless idiot um, and a sort of purely tragic figure as opposed to someone with agency and intelligence who made a series of choices in her own life. Can we and, sure. Can, can we hit on this just for a minute? Because I am... One thing I've always believed when I read, you know, Kale's essay slash book on the subject, um, uh, when I when I watched RKO two eighty one, the HBO uh, movie starring uh, I don't know, starring Roy Scheider and others uh, about the making of C- Citizen Kane, um, and watching this, I, I'm I've always been struck by the fact that I think Herman Mankiewicz is kind of a bad person. Uh, he's kind of a bad person for 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 doing this to at the very least one friend Marion Davies and and frankly another person who brought him into his confidence William Randolph Hearst and you know made him part of part of his his group and part of his life and this movie i think i think shies away from that a bit by trying to give him a, a scene of absolution by Marion Davies where she says oh you know i i hope you don't mind if i try and get this thing killed and they seem to have a sort of good rapport about it like oh it's all fun and games it's sort but of I mean, dry and melancholy and you know there's a hint of flirtation in it yeah no i i agree and, and it's also it's also worth noting that the movie invents Mankwitch's you know attraction to upton sinclair's campaign um it overstates you know his efforts to get jews out of nazi germany i mean it I'm, and I'm, you know, he did, in fact, sponsor refugees. I'm not saying he was a bad person in that regard, just not as good as the movie makes him out to be. But the movie does really uh, sort of seem to feel the need to burnish him um, in order to make the story work in a way that's not quite true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, bad person is wrong. I, like, I don't I don't I have no strong feelings one way or another about Herman Mankiewicz as a man, except in this one very s- specific regard. And it does. Again, I like every every time I read something about this or or watch something about it, all I can think is, God, you get, would you do that to somebody who you spent so much time being friendly with? I just like it's a it's a real shiv. I well, don't know. And, there, and there is this really, you know, the climactic scene in the movie, Mankiewicz shows up at late for a party at Hearst. Uh, he's already drunk and proceeds to get drunker and then sort of pitch what becomes Citizen Kane um, as sort of, you know, Hearst plus Don Quixote. 
uh, in a way that is, you know, cruel, that's embarrassing to his hosts, and he ends up getting sick on the floor and sort of ruining the party. But the most interesting acting in that scene, actually, despite the fact that Oldman's performance is so sort of flashy there, it was Charles Dance, who I think, you know, a lot of audiences are going to know mostly as Tywin Lannister. Um, but he but plays her. working with Fincher since <laughs> Alien 3, which he is great in. Um, but Dance is so good in this scene because he is someone who has genuinely liked Mankiewicz, thinks he's smart and interesting and sort of brought him into his orbit. And you see him just in the sort of little rueful downturn of the corners of Dance's mouth, the sort of softening of his eyes, that he's really in pain here, that, you know, he is seeing someone who was a friend who cared about him turn on him. Um, And I think that ultimately what makes the movie more than just sort of a rote screed against, you know, Hollywood liberals, which fair enough, um, is the fact that Mankiewicz I don't think it's a rote screed against you know, yeah. liberals. It's it's more that it's against sort of Hollywood's uh, political self-absorption, right? Sure, which but it now also- expresses itself as liberal as a kind of conventional liberalism. But what makes it, I think, even so, granted, all of that, I agree with you. I was being a little flip. Um, but what it makes it takes it a step beyond that is that you know Mankiewicz is someone who kind of fails to commit across the board and ends up being cruel to someone who didn't deserve it. And, you know, Alison Wilmore in her review of the movie said that, the, you know, Manx sort of looks at Citizen Kane as an act of war and that, you know, Mankiewicz is ultimately effective in kind of defining Hearst. And I don't actually know that that's true, right? I mean, I think that people know vaguely that William Randolph Hearst is like maybe the inspiration for Citizen Kane, but Upton Sinclair, who in the movie Mank does nothing active to support, actually did far more to define Hearst through his muckraking journalism about him than Mankiewicz actually did. Mankiewicz kind of threw up a legend that obscured the real Hearst, that hurt Marion Davies and her legacy along the way. And, you know, as much as the, as Thalberg and Mayer are kind of gross self-righteous figures, what they do works, right? I mean, they elect their candidate. They are more willing to actually get in the fray and use their skills for what they believe and it may not be admirable that they're doing it, but Manx fence-sitting and his willingness to sort of take advantage of these friendships is not terribly admirable or attractive either. Um, and there's this, you know, there's this famous quote about his alcoholism that they, you know, use before the title credits. But it, you know, it talks about him, he is talking about being sort of in a trap of his own making that he mends every time that he has a realistic chance of getting out of it. And it seems to, as much as it's about his drinking, which ultimately killed him, it feels a little bit like it's about his ability to commit to any ideas either. Um, and so I, I didn't love the movie, but there's a lot going on there in a way that's genuinely interesting. And I think it fits in part of a pattern of kind of idiosyncratic engaging movies about Hollywood that suggest that its liberal members are not terribly effective um, in, in a way that I just find really interesting. Uh, one, yeah, we haven't really talked about like the, the movie, uh, like well, what movie. happens, what happens in the movie, you know, that much. And I, I, I there are two things that uh, two, two ideas from others that I'm going to appropriate for myself. One is uh, from 
a a uh, writer, Glenn Kenny, who suggests that anyone who watches this movie and thinks of it as a, you know, kind of love letter to the golden age of Hollywood is not paying attention to it because this is a very this is a very dyspeptic film. Um, and yeah, this it is, is not David Fincher's uh, the artist. No, no, this is not. This is not the sort of movie you make if you want to look at you know the good old days and the studio system and say, "How about that? How how great was that?" Uh, and the other is uh, a thought from Andy Levy, who suggested in just a kind of one-off tweet that this movie is a bit like Ready Player One for golden the golden age of Hollywood. And there is there is a, there is an element of that here where you get like little glimpses of famous. Uh, studio system stories like, for instance, Louis B. Mayer gathering the stars of MGM. Um, but more importantly, the below-the-line workers, the the crews and 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 everybody else who had been talking about unionizing and getting them all together in a room and talking about how we're all in this together and we're all going to have to take pay cuts and you know I'm going first and who's with me and you know Barrymore stands up and he's like I'll I'm with you and Shirley Temple stands up and he's like I'm with you and then and then the the you know below the line workers are like okay it's fine for them they can take it but I am I live paycheck to paycheck you know and like it th- this is just one of many of like the little um little glimpses into Hollywood past that we get here that like could have been fleshed out into movies all on their own uh frankly um it, it's it is Again, it's 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 kind of an interesting look at what Fincher himself finds fascinating uh, about this time. And it is I think it's you know, it, it reminds me a, a bit of uh, a Gone Girl in the sense that that movie is a murder mystery. But what it's actually about is kind of the ridiculousness of our media environment um, uh, or Fight Club, which is a movie that's kind of about the ridiculousness of consumerism, but it's actually about why what would replace it is much, much worse um, and much darker. And I I, I just think I, I have always been interested to see what he does and how he does it. And even a movie like this, which I don't think is great, has a lot going for it. So David Fincher is my favorite working director. Um, and I will say that I think this is probably it's not his worst film but i think it's probably his most difficult film sort of ornery it's not super viewer friendly it's not um it's not a movie that is just deeply pleasurable to watch uh like i think actually some of his movies even his sort of gruesome thriller you know i I think seven is a movie that is just incredibly engaging right it pulls you in and it has just a, a relentless plot logic it's gorgeous it's all of those things this is this is a movie that is that has a sort of um it distances itself from you, the viewer, and it's it's kind of cold. Um, it's also kind of impeccable in the way that it's made, uh, because that's how David Fincher makes movies. Um, and in a way, it reminds me a little bit, actually, of Chinatown, because this is a movie uh, set in Hollywood's past about kind of the rot at the heart of the Hollywood system. Um, and it is it's a movie not maybe about Hollywood's original sin exactly, but about the lies that Hollywood has always told itself and how those lies and uh, how its self-deception and self-absorption went into the creation of one of its greats. And in a way it actually kind of, it makes me think of, uh, of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and it's almost like a, a movie made as an argue, like as, as a response to that, right? Like, uh, Tarantino's whole idea, especially for the last couple, for the last like half of his career, has been 
that cinema, there's something saving about it, right? That it can rescue us from our worst selves and deliver us into a better world. And David Fincher's idea, particularly here, is always, nah, you know, it's cheap thrills for perverts. And the people who work there are kind of bad. But you know what? I can make this shot look really good. <laughs> I'm actually surprised that neither of you has brought up Hail Caesar yet, which seems like a perfect movie to discuss in conjunction with this, which you know is the Coen Brothers movie about a just beleaguered Hollywood problem solver whose job is essentially to like solve every problem that insane idiotic stars get themselves into, including getting kidnapped by a group of secretly communist writers who are pissed off that they're not making enough money. Um, and I would argue that movie is even more so sort of the ready player one of classic Hollywood, just in that it impeccably recreates every single sort of trope of fifties Hollywood from the aquatic ballets to the Westerns, the sort yeah. of, Part no, 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 no. But the difference of name dropping. Yeah, yes. but the, yeah, that's yeah. the difference. I mean, that's why this is the Ready Player One because it's like, <laughs> oh, remember that? I remember that. I remember when Louis B. Mayer did that. Uh, you know, uh, whereas Hail Caesar is much cleverer in the sense that it's like inventing all of these things as it's um, playing in the tropes. I uh, well, I do, I do love Hail Caesar, so I'm always up for a good mm -hmm. Hail Caesar reference. Uh, so, what do we think? What do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Mank, Alyssa? You can watch Citizen Kane on Netflix instead. Why not just do that? I or sorry, not on Netflix. I think on it's, HBO on HBO Max. Max. it's on it's HBO, HBO Max. It's on HBO Max. Yeah. Can't keep the services straight. Watch HBO. Watch. <laughs> just Citizen watch HBO Kane Max. On HBO all the Max time. instead. Um, I warmed to the movie as I was watching it, and while I wouldn't say you know that it was just like the most satisfying cinematic experience of the year, I, I actually the. The further I get from it, the more I think about it, the more I like it. Um, and I think it's probably going to end up uh, very high on my top 10 list for this year. I liked it. Uh, I liked it. Thumbs up. Good movie. That's it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, like Peter loved Mank un unreservedly and with great passion, uh, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode at Bulwark Plus. Uh, and also make sure to tell your friends about the show. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. Um, if you didn't love today's episode, you're wrong, but that's fine. You can complain to me uh, on Twitter at Sunny Bunch about it. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed once again. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>